Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail, and we are those people. I'm Mike Bowden, distal head of Intermodal Solutions here at Freight Waves, and I'm joined, as always, by Joanna Marsh, our uh, editorial writer who follows the railroad industry. And uh, today we're going to be speaking with uh, Chuck Baker. He's president of American Short Line and Regional Railroad Associations. And before we do that, um, Joanna, I would like to go through one of your articles uh, that you just put, um, and really one of the top, maybe the topic of the hour right now is uh, the carload traffic um, growth at Vancouver, believe it or not, is is growing on on the grain side. Uh, you know, sort of in spite of the strike, or maybe because of the the, the strike. Yeah. So, um, so even though you know international intermodal has taken a hit, um, you know, because uh, grain because there's a federal mandate in Canada, you know that that grain uh, shipments continue. Um, grain is actually still moving um, through the port of Vancouver, and actually at Prince Rupert. Um, the, I believe it's, um, how's it now? Petroleum and, and coal is actually, uh, moving at a pretty good clip because, um, because the terminal where, where, uh, those commodities move, um, isn't affected, um, by the, uh, by, by the contract negotiations. That said, I'm not sure if you caught it. There is actually this kind of late breaking news, um, like within the last hour that, um, that there has been an agreement reached between, um, the doc workers union yeah. um and the port operators and so that still of course has to be ratified um so uh but it is a four-year agreement so um so we'll see you know how uh you know how um you know how, how it goes and i believe like you know the the, the port operators are saying you know they're hopeful of course that you know that that uh things can go back to normal um should the agreement be ratified so uh that's where we are at the moment yeah, that would be a big relief for the Canadian railroads uh, in particular. Yeah. Uh, I think the sooner that gets resolved, the sooner they can get their networks uh, back to normal, which um, you know, even the short period of time, and that was almost two weeks, is going to be hugely uh, dis disruptive. Uh, yeah. So that's a little bit of an update. Yeah, um, yeah so that's a little bit of an update. I think you should save most of the time here for, for today's guest. Uh, I want to bring in uh, Chuck Baker. Uh, Chuck Baker is president of the American Short Line and Regional Railroad Associations. Uh, Chuck, are you there? I sure am. It's great. Great to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, long time listener, first time uh, participant, I guess. But I, I think you guys do a great job. I'm a loyal Joanna Marsh reader, so I'm happy to happy to be on the podcast. Yeah, well, it's great to have it's great. you. Great, nice to see you there. Yeah, Chuck, if you know, I'm moving a little bit. I think um, uh, it's just there. You go. Oh, yeah, there you go. Okay, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's great to have Joanna. You. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's a mirrored display on my computer. So if I move right, mm. it shows me left. So I have to reorient my brain. Yeah, it is pretty. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So for those who aren't familiar with short line railroads, maybe just you know, know the class ones. I mean, can you give us a little bit of update of, or just a little bit of overview of 
what's the Shoreline Regional Railroad and what does your association uh, do for those uh, organizations? Sure. Yeah. Happy to. So we're the, we're the national trade association, you know, just like pretty much every industry you could possibly fathom has a national trade association, uh, somewhere in Washington, DC. We're the association for short line railroads. Um, most people who are familiar with freight railroads certainly could name probably all six of the big class one railroads. Uh, but very few people know there are actually another 600 short line railroads in the country. Um, uh, those are technically, they're called class two or three railroads, but we colloquially, colloquially refer to them as, as short line railroads. And they're essentially the first mile and last mile of the freight railroad network. Um, another way to think of them is many of them, sort of the typical short line is basically what used to be kind of an unloved, unsuccessful, not priority kind of branch line of a bigger railroad. And over time, those got spun off and turned into independent shortline railroads where the short line can kind of focus on that one, you know, 30 or 50 or 70 mile section of track and really focus on serving just those customers and try to grow a few more customers, providing great service to those customers. And then, you know, taking that traffic and handing it to a class one. And by and large, it's been a pretty great success story. So there's 600 of them throughout the country. And in total, it's about 50,000 miles of track. So it's a lot of railroads. So really, um, they're, they're in many ways tied to the class ones, the sort of as the first mile, last mile. At the same time, they're really kind of in a different business altogether. Um, and you need a, an organization like yours to work in their best interests. And, um, you know, what are some of the specific issues and, you know, sort of regulatory concerns that the, the short lines um, are, are interested in? Yeah, that, I mean, that's right. You know, for trade associations, we do lots of stuff, right? Like we do conferences and we do weekly newsletters and we do safety templates, but you're, you're right to ask about kind of the regulatory and legislative issues. Th that's our primary purpose for existing. Uh, you know, we help the shorelines in in DC. Uh, and so we we look we spend a lot of time talking about legislation and regula regulation. Um, railroading is very it's a highly regulated industry. It has been for a long time. We are very dependent, both good and bad, on what's going on on a national policy level. Um, and so we play offense and defense, right? On on the offense side, which is always a little bit more fun, we try to help railroads get uh, money to help short lines get money to invest in infrastructure, right? Our, our class one friends are big, uh, profitable companies. They don't need federal help for investing in infrastructure and they don't ask for it. Short lines are very different, right? Like we talked about, we're there to preserve lines in smaller areas. And so we do need help uh, and we we ask for it um, and we've been pretty successful at getting it. So there's a something called 45G, which is a short line railroad tax credit, which we've uh, we've worked on for a long time, and it's now part of the federal tax code that helps. And on a on an annual basis, at this point, we're very focused on the Chrissy Grant Program, uh, which can provide, uh, you know, this year is providing north of a billion dollars in opportunity for short lines to go after. Short lines won't get it all because there's also passenger rail. Um, going after it and even communities going after it for kind of grade crossings and grade separations and some class one projects, but short lines are directly eligible and we'll, we'll spend a lot of time working on that program and trying to go for it. 
So that's kind of on the fun offense side. And then we spend time playing defense too, whether it's um, rail safety legislation. Um, and sometimes I'll put safety in, in air quotes there because there's things that um, sometimes people say is rail safety that we say is not rail safety. Crew size perhaps being, you know, the signature one of those issues. Also, truck size and weight uh, is a big issue that we play, uh, I guess you'd call it defense on. We think that um, large trucks already don't pay their fair share of their infrastructure damage. And the idea of increasing the size or the weight of those tr trucks is a, a bad idea for infrastructure and safety, but is obviously also a big threat to to railroads. Um, and so we're those, those are some of the, the highlights and the lowlights right there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think in some of the, um, you know, some of the bills that come to pass, they kind of group all railroads together, kind of treat all railroads the same. I mean, you mentioned the thing like the, the, the cruise size. Well, I mean, it, it's so different, a short line where it's not going as fast. Maybe you're not going, you know, through a community that um, maybe no person crew or one person crew is just, is just fine. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are there are hundreds, I mean, literally hundreds of short lines that today are operating trains with only one person in the cab, you know, and they've been doing it that way for, uh, many years, decades in many cases. uh, many of those have a second person kind of trailing the train in essentially like a pickup truck or a utility truck. And that person can drive ahead and line switches and check on crossings. They can observe the train as it goes by. They can get to a customer yard and get things prepped. But we've been doing it that way for decades, safely and with no problem. And, you know, and I, I would probably argue that class ones also could do that um, you know, on a practical basis, I, uh, on a contract basis. They can't do that because of their labor union negotiations. But the idea that Congress would need to regulate crew size doesn't really fit with our experience uh, or the FRA needing to proactively do it also doesn't fit. And I, I would agree with your sort of hypothesis there, Michael, that, you know, with smaller companies moving slower trains, often not in any kind of high threat urban area, um, the, the argument for additional crew members kind of even, even more specious, but, um, you know, you just don't need a second person in the cab to operate uh, a short line train. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Um, and I guess if you don't mind, um, 
I know that uh, I believe that ASLR um, and the Association of American Railroads um, are involved in uh, have uh, filed a lawsuit um, with uh, California regulators regarding um, the zero emissions locomotives um, uh, mandate that they have. Um, do, could you explain sort of like your your interest in it and and um, you know what you hope to see happen? Um, uh, you know, as as the issue. Yeah, it's a. Um... It's frankly an unfortunate situation. I don't wake up looking to sue states or state regulatory agencies. That's not kind of how we'd prefer to spend our time, you know, um, just to go on a slight tangent. You know, I'm in this industry, like I chose this job in this field because I really feel like railroads are the good guys and particularly short line railroads. I, I think it's good for the economy, good for the environment, good for public safety to move more freight by rail. And so when we see regulatory agencies kind of overdo it and do stuff that we think can harm our ability to move freight by rail, it's very upsetting and sort of causes a lot of like cognitive dissonance over here. But the CARB has proposed a regulation that is just wildly impractical uh, on any sort of reasonable time frame or in the world where like there are finite Dollars and the money doesn't grow on trees. They they have proposed a rule that um, before you even talk about zero emissions, one of the fact one of the things in this rule says by 2030, no railroad operating in California shall have any locomotive that is older than 23 years old. Um, and you know I I know that we can't hear our audience, but if there are audience if there are people listening who understand short lines. They are now like either gasping or laughing out loud, right? Like there are many short lines that literally only have locomotives that are older than 23 years old. So the idea of just saying you can't have a locomotive older than 23 years old just does not at all fit with the realities of being a short line railroad and how we're trying to preserve these kind of marginal lines and run freight, you know, inexpensively and efficiently and with a kind of a small budget sometimes uh and you know and they would california wants to get to zero emissions and we are obviously very pro environment moving freight by rail is the most environmentally friendly way to move freight and we are very interested in getting better than we are right now so we're doing lots of stuff right pilot programs testing out electric locomotives hydrogen locomotives testing out fuel additives doing rail grinding rail lubrication um, obviously like as we get money, we upgrade locomotives and put them in newer tier classes, but mandating zero emission locomotives anytime soon is just not the, the technology is not there yet. It's certainly not at scale and it's certainly not affordable for short lines. You know, they tend to buy like 30 year old kind of hand me down locomotives for a hundred thousand dollars. And the idea of spending five or $6 million on a brand new tier five that doesn't exist zero emission locomotive is just not like that's just not something that fits with reality yeah i couldn't agree more I, that doesn't make a lot of sense um to, to, to mandate those things um maybe just want to shift gears and uh can you talk a little bit about rail uh service i know a lot of the the shippers have really complained about rail service the past um really really since the pandemic and blamed a lot of that on not having the cruise sizes you know how has that impacted the short line community yeah, it, it's a great question. You know, so shorelines are railroads, 
of course, right? And if you go out and look, they look like railroads. And if you, you know, you talk to them, they can speak railroad, but they also, many of them really think of themselves and kind of act more like a shipper representative on a, on a daily basis, right? Like they've got maybe the first 30 miles, right? And so they deal with the customer and they go switch the customer and they get the stuff and they move it 30 miles across their line. And then they hand it to a class one where it needs to go the next 1200 miles to its final destination. So when there are problems on the class one network, uh, it affects short lines very much in the same way it would affect shippers. And, uh, you know, it is definitely not any sort of like breaking news or even controversial statement at this point to say that the last few years have not been, uh, not been the best time for railroad service. I, I think frankly, the industry, um, is kind of embarrassed about the service that we provided holistically over, you know, 2021 and 2022. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of causes for that, whether it's kind of overcooking PSR and too many layoffs in 18 and 19, or whether it's furloughs during COVID in 2020, and then crews not coming back in a historically tight labor market, or, you know, there's a sort of a lengthy list of reasons and boogeymen to talk about the reality is that service wasn't up to par over the last couple of years and it's been a big problem i think it's cost a lot of short lines volume opportunities it's cost huge frustrations it's cost shippers money it's cost short lines money and it's probably cost class one's money too um and i think um and i, I don't want to step on what would hopefully be your next question but I, the good news is I do think it is starting to get better. Uh, I think we are really starting to see some green shoots out there um, on actual improving service, improving metrics, you know, maybe led most of all by CSX, which has really started to see a pretty dramatic turn. But I think we're going to see it all kind of industry-wide starting to really get better um, pretty soon and already starting to happen. And then I also think, and, you know, this is maybe more important to me than to somebody who's actually like, shipping stuff tomorrow but we're also hearing i think really good kind of getting it messages from the ceos uh, of the big class ones uh particularly joe at csx alan at ns tracy at cn keith at cp are all really kind of really have pretty dramatically changed the focus of the message uh, you know away from or and towards service, growth, partnership, good relationships with employees, hiring, you know, not furloughing next time there's a downturn and really saying kind of like we as an industry need to be here for shippers over a cycle and prove that it's not going to be like good service for two years and bad service for two years and good and bad and boom and bust. And to say like, we, we're your forever partner, right? Like you can invest, you can trust us and we will get this right. And so I, I want to believe the short lines want to believe. Uh, and I think I'm feeling, I'm feeling good at it, a uh, good about it. And hopefully I'm not being, you know, naive about it. Yeah. We'll see when there's a full, you know, business cycle and when volumes really dip, if they actually, you know, stick to that and, and, and don't furlough and uh, we'll see how in investors react to that. Are they too short-sighted? Can they take that longer term approach? It's all those things. They're the longer term best interest of the industry. It's just not all the in investors have a, a long term uh, time uh, horizon. 
Um, sure. Speaking of investors, a um, you know one of the the companies I used to cover was uh, Genesee, Wyoming, a you know, big short line um, holding company. You know, a lot of the, the short lines are owned by a big holding company like that or Watco. What, what are the advantages of, of having that ownership structure for a short line and, and what are some drawbacks? Yeah, that's an interesting question, too. You know, so there's what, like, let's say 600 short line railroads. You know, GMW owns about 100 of them. Watco owns about 40 of them. Omnitrax has about 20. Patriot Rail's got about 30 now that they merged with Pioneer. RJ Corman's got about 20. And then there's a few more that's got, you know, regional rail and uh, Florida, uh, Gulf and Atlantic that have, you know, five or 10. So there's probably north of 300, maybe 350 shorelines at this point that are owned by some size holding company. And then another couple hundred that are, you know, purely sort of independent. I would say the good news from my point of view, and I think from the shipper point of view, you know, and, and blessedly so far from the regulator point of view too, is that there's really not that much of a difference, you know, on a, on the, on the ground, a short line owned and operated by GNW really doesn't act or look particularly meaningfully different than like a pure independent. Uh, I think they provide the same type of service, the same type of kind of like bend over backwards do everything the customer asks because you only have a few customers. You got to keep them real happy. They have the same opportunities and challenges with their class one interchange partners and all that stuff. There are some kind of obvious advantages, just like maybe like a business school 101 type stuff, right? Like if you own a hundred different short lines, you don't have to have a hundred different web guys to like get your website right. Like you could have a couple of web guys. And they can, they can get the internet part or part right for everything. And if you're going to be buying ties for 20 different short lines, you don't need 20 different purchasing or procurement managers, right? Like you can have one and they can buy things in bulk, right? And you don't need 20 different CFOs and you don't need 20 different tax guys and you don't need 20 different lawyers. And so there are some things that make sense to decentralize. And I think that helps with the cost structure and probably the sophistication and reporting tools and stuff like that. But there's also, there's still hundreds of pure independents out there. Um, and they, they have their own advantages, right? Like if you're truly a pure independent and it's still the same family that's owned the railroad for 50 years, you know, that maybe really accentuates like what everybody loves about short line, right? Like the owner is the president and he can also operate the train on Tuesday. And he's also friends with all the local congressmen. And he's also a member of the local chamber of commerce. And he sponsors the local little league team and all that stuff too. So, you know, they're kind of different vibes of different short lines, but more, more so there's more similarities than differences. Blessedly. Wow. Okay. I guess, um, you know, in the, in the sort of about like two minutes we have left, um, Kind of thinking about technological advancements, um, you know, such as Rail Pulse and and other sort of tools to to promote supply chain visibility, um, is that having any significant impact on short line railroads? You know, um, the you know the the technical you know the technologies that are happening with the class one, or how much um, how much of those uh, advancements do you see? Uh, I would say trickle down, but you know, um, or maybe I don't know if short lines themselves are kind of actively involved in uh, in getting with those tech advancements going yeah i mean rail pulse 
as an association, I'm not technically involved in Rail Pulse, but I've sort of pointed myself as you know one of their head cheerleaders. I, I, I think it's a fantastic program, and I think it's going to be a huge deal for the industry. Uh, not today, right? It's going to take a couple of years to get at scale where they can put these sensors with GPS and door opener closed and impact and wheel temperature and um, all that stuff. You know, it'll take a few years to get those on to thousands and tens of thousands and hopefully eventually, you know, a million plus rail cars. But I think once that's out there and everybody can see where their car is and the status of those cars at any time on any railroad, I, I think that'll be a really seminal moment in our industry. Um, frankly, it's, you know, it's maybe a little embarrassing that we're just kind of getting into this conversation in a very serious way in 2023, because, you know, we probably are, but we're behind on this, but better late than never. Um, and I think for short lines, the, that sort of visibility and ability to give transparency to the customers and comfort to them that they can see their stuff and we know where it is, is a big, going to help sell, sell moving freight by rail, which is what we're, we're most excited to do. There are plenty of other kind of technologies out there besides rail pulse that people are involved in day to day with, you know, EDIs and APIs and, uh, readers and stuff like that but that's probably the, the topic of a whole separate uh podcast yeah really a lot going on there in terms of um you know technological advancements you know th I mean, things like um just uh, you know, automated you know repair detecting you know which you know cars need to be repaired which track needs to be repaired all of those things but you really done a lot with a uh, safety so that you uh, give out a number of uh safety awards um you know recently for having zero injuries which is really imp impressive um so uh sort of commend you on on, on that um, we're about out of time, uh, but where can people uh, go to reach out to, to you or the Shortline Association? Yeah, I appreciate that. We're on the internet, of course, uh, ASLRRA.org. But if you really want to, you really want to get to know Shortlines, the best place would be come to one of our events, and they're also on the website. But um, we have two regional meetings in the fall: September in Long Beach, November in Lexington, and then our big one is every spring. So March 2024 will be in. Kansas City, and we'll have a good 1,800 people there. It is a really fun two and a half days, and it's like a deep dive into everything short line you could ever want. So uh, come on out. Sounds like a great event. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for being on. Thank you. Appreciate it.